It turns out parenting's hard. It just is. And frankly, sometimes I'm not that good at it. There's not really a manual per se, but my wife and I have tried so desperately to teach our kids just these basic principles of, uh, to love God and to love other people and, and to live lives of love. We try to be honest and transparent with our kids, to admit when we make mistakes, when we sometimes are too harsh, or when we sometimes act like children ourselves, uh, and just to go to them and humbly and graciously try to say, hey, forgive us for the ways that we've not done this perfectly all the time. Uh, throughout our kids' lives so far, we've, we've used some idioms, some kind of phrases and expressions that we've used to try to help uh, implant these ideas and these concepts into their heads. For instance, when they were little, and, and even today, uh, when our kids express gratitude, we'll say to them, thanks for saying thanks, we love it when you're grateful. And that sounds kind of silly and simplistic, but the reality is, we've done it since they were little kids, and I can tell you that, honestly, we get feedback from other parents and from teachers and friends. They'll say things like, I can't believe how grateful your kid is. Like, they said thanks after dinner, or they said thanks for taking us to whatever. And so you get to see these little snippets of evidence that, boy, you know what? Taking time to again and again repeat these ideas and, and instill in them these ideas has a payoff. We've also done some ones that are a little bit more theological in nature, uh, trying to give them a picture of who God is and, and how much we love them, but how God loves them as well. Uh, one of the phrases we've used, I've done it since they were little, it's kind of a dad joke, because dad jokes are awesome. Uh, I'll, say, I'll say to one of my kids, do you know how much I love you? And they'll say, very, very much. And I correct them and I say, no, it's very, 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 very much. And they, of course, smile or roll their eyes in the case of my 13-year-old. And I'll say, and how much does God love you? And they say, even more. What we want them to understand is that we love them in ridiculous, amazing, overwhelming ways. And yet somehow, mysteriously, God loves them even more than we can as their parents. I was able to capture this once uh, with my daughter, Eliana, on video when she was like one. It didn't go all that well. Let's watch. Ellie, do you know how much I love you? How much? How much do I love you, Ellie? Very, 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 very much. And how much does God love you? More. Even more. Even more. I love you so much, Ellie. Even when you don't. No, 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 stop. <laughs> how awesome is that, right? And part of the humor is she says cheeseburger, not because I love cheeseburgers, which I do, but because every time we'd hold up a camera and take a picture, she thought instead of saying cheese, she said cheeseburger. So at, at any rate, the point is we love our kids so much. We want to speak into their lives these truths that we love them and somehow God loves them even more so that not only do they know that and they can experience that now, but so that they can carry that reality into their schools, that reality into their work, that reality into young adulthood. They can live knowing that they are radically loved in a world where love is conditional and love is earned and where you can lose love if you don't perform right. We want to speak contra messages to them. We want to set them up for success because, frankly, the world can be kind of hard and kind of scary and kind of ungrateful and kind of unloving sometimes. We're in a series of a church that we've been in for the last couple of weeks called Our Kids, looking at some of the very real challenges that kids face today in this world, and then talking about ways that we as their church 
family. Come around them. Can equip them to thrive in the now, but also be prepared for, for the life that is ahead of them. Prepared to enter in a world where young adults know that they are loved by us, but also more importantly, that they are loved even more by God. That they would enter uh, adulthood seeing God and God's people, the church, this community, as a place of love and as a place that is a resource to them, an anchor for them as they go out into a world that oftentimes feels kind of unanchored. And this isn't primarily a parenting series. I mean, parents have such a crucial role to play in the faith formation of kids. But the truth is, for all of us that are in this place, whether you're a single adult or an empty nester or a grandparent, an aunt and an uncle, all of us have a role to play in shaping this next generation. They are our future. They are our kids in very real ways. And we all have a role to play. Week one, we looked at some statistics. We call them troubling trends. Basically, looking at kids today and how many kids today are walking away from church altogether. Most kids uh, see church as having very little value. But we also then looked at some of the statistics that say when kids are disconnected from any kind of faith community, they have, that has real impact on their lives. Kids that are invested and plugged into a community that loves them and supports them and teaches these things have statistically healthier patterns in their lives around relationships and around substances and around sexuality and around all of these different things. Looked at the very real impact it's having on our culture. Then week two, we said, how do we become a place that is welcoming of all kids? No matter what they believe, no matter what they've done, no matter where they're at in life, what they wear, how do we welcome all kids to a place that's safe to experience God with us. We've been looking at the Apostle Paul as he mentored a young uh, minister named Timothy and kind of passed on to the next generation in faith the things that he had learned. Well, today we are going to continue that discussion with part three looking at modeling. And we're going to go back a little bit further in the biblical narrative. In fact, way further in the biblical narrative, all the way back to kind of the beginning of God's people in the Old Testament. We're going to look at a book uh, called Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want to invite you to turn with me there if you brought your Bible today. If you haven't, if you don't have a Bible with you or a Bible at home, we'd love to send you with one. We've got a stack of them in the back that we'd love to send you with as a gift, and then you can bring it back next week when you come back, which would be great. All right, Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, basically by way of context, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, have been slaves in Egypt for generations they had been, the only life that they had ever known was slavery. And God, through a man named Moses, freed them from slavery. And not only freed them, but promised that he would bring them to this new land, this promised land that was better than anything else they'd ever known. They would know abundance. They would know freedom. They would know a land that literally flows with milk and honey, according to the text. And now we find them here at Deuteronomy chapter 4, about to enter into that land. But before they do, God wants to pull them aside and basically say, hey, these are some very specific instructions I want to give you on how you are to live in this new land so that you can thrive in this new land. But not only you, but your children and your grandchildren and the generations to come. See, God knew that this new land was amazing and it held so much promise for his children, so much good for his children. But he also knew that this land was full of new ideas and new people and new religions and new practices. God knew that this group of people that that was in front of him in this very moment, these people who still remembered what it was like to be slaves, this group of people who still remembered what it was to feel freedom for the first time in generations, this group of people who had seen God miraculously provide for them as they crossed through the wilderness, God knew that they, having seen all those things, would remember 
and might be faithful to God as they entered. But what about the next generation? Let's read chapter 4, verse 1. And now, Israel, listen carefully to these decrees and regulations that I'm about to teach you. Obey them so that you may live, so that you may enter in and occupy the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to or subtract from these commands I'm giving you. Just obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you. Now, I teach you these decrees and regulations just as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may obey them in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. Obey them completely and you will display your wisdom and intelligence among the surrounding nations. When they hear all these decrees, they will exclaim, How wise and prudent are the people of this great nation. For what great nation has a God as near to them as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation has decrees and regulations as righteous and as fair as this body of instructions that I'm giving you today? So stopping there for a minute, I think it's interesting to note that, that God is giving them these, these laws and decrees so that they might live so that they might have a good life. And he's saying, not only if you live this way, not only will you experience the life that I have for you, the goodness that I have for you, but the people around you, the people, the nations in this land will see you and will wonder. They'll see you and they'll recognize the wisdom and the power of these words. They will, they will recognize your righteousness. These people are saying, if you live this way, not only is it good for you, but you will actually make a real difference in this world. But then he gives them a warning, continuing in verse 9. But watch out. Be careful never to forget what you yourselves have seen. Don't forget the stories. Don't forget the slavery. Don't forget what freedom tastes like. Don't let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live. And this is key. And be sure to pass them on to your children and grandchildren. Never forget the day when you stood before the Lord your God at Mount Sinai, where he told me, summon the people before me, and I will personally instruct them. Then they will learn to fear me as long as they live, and they will teach their children to fear me also. And so the Moses goes on, and he outlines all these decrees and regulations and concepts of how they were to interact with God, how Israel was to interact with each other, and how they were to interact with the nations around them. And each of these contains a clause about how that next generation should respond, how that next generation should be impacted. For instance, continuing in chapter 4, he says, don't make idols. You're about to go into this land, and you will see people that make idols of everything. They make idols of other people. They make idols of sex. They make idols of animals. They make idols of nations. Don't. He says it this way, and it's generational. In the future, when you have children and grandchildren and have lived in this land a long time, don't corrupt yourselves by making idols of any kind. This is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and will arouse his anger. And it's easy to kind of dismiss that and say, well, yep, idols. I don't really have a problem with that. But look around in our culture and you realize we make idols of a lot of things from celebrity to politicians to sports figures. We idolize career. We idolize lots of things in our culture. I would argue this is as relevant for us as it was for them. He then goes on and he reminds them that he alone is God and that there are no other gods. And that reality is more than just a rule for them. It's a promise. Let's read verse 39. So remember this and keep it firmly in mind. The Lord is God both in heaven and on earth, and there is no other. If you obey all these decrees and commands I'm giving you today, listen to this, all will be well with you and your children. 
I'm giving you these instructions so you will enjoy a long life in the land the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Then in chapter 5, God gives the Ten Commandments, which we're all familiar with. And he gives them to the people, and the people actually listen, and they submit humbly to them. They say, yes, we want that. We want those sorts of boundaries in our lives. And God responds, oh, that they would always have hearts like this, that they might fear me and obey all my commands. If they did, they and their descendants would prosper forever. Do you hear God's heart in all of that? It's not that he would simply give them rules and, and dictate how they live so that he might control everything they do and so that he could suppress their desires. And His desire is that they would live and live a long life and live a good life and that they would prosper forever. And not just them, but future generations. And so far as you listen to this, I mean, all of these have kind of hammered home the idea, teach them, teach them, teach them, teach them, teach them. Like it's just lecture after lecture after lecture. And the kids in here are going, oh, no. <laughs> Where's the modeling in this? Well, chapter 6, I think, starts to turn the corner on that and show us what it is to live this out modeled in our lives. Chapter 6, verse 4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In other words, with everything you are in every moment of your day, with everything you do. And you must commit yourself wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Don't just give mental assent. Don't just write that down in some notebook. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your foreheads as a reminder. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Again, I think the point that God is not trying to make here is hammer this on your kids all the time. Rules and regulations and rules and regulations. Certainly that's part of teaching. I think what Moses is trying to say, what God is trying to say through him is take these principles that God loves you radically and he has a plan for you and that he wants good for you and there are ways that we can accomplish that. Take that and integrate that into every moment of your day, every moment of your life, your work life and your home life, at bedtime and at mealtime, at work time and at church time in your sports, and in your schools. These can be lived and integrated into every moment of life. I think God knew that his people were entering into a new land, and that the next generation was at very real risk of walking away from God, from God's people, and from the good life of blessing that God really wanted for them. I think that's true for us today as well. We too are entering a new land, maybe not geographically, but certainly technologically, philosophically, spiritually, relationally, culturally. Our culture has changed in ways that we have never experienced before. And this change is different from previous generational changes. David uh, Kinneman, uh, the president of Barner Research Group and the author of a book called You Lost Me, why young Christians are leaving church and rethinking faith, says this about culture. I would argue that the next generation is so different because our culture is discontinuously different. That is, the cultural setting in which young people have come of age is significantly changed from what was experienced during the formative years of previous generations. In fact, I believe a reasonable argument can be made that no generation of Christians has lived through a set of cultural changes so profound and lightning fast. 
other generations of Christ followers have endured much greater persecution. Others have had to sacrifice more to flourish or even survive. But I doubt many previous generations have lived through as compounded and complicated a set of cultural changes as have today's Christians in the West. The last 50 years have been a real-time experiment on the next generation using free markets, media, advertising, technology, politics, sexuality, and so on as our lab tools. He argues that we are entering, we have entered a new land. And like the promise of the Old Testament, it contains so many things that are good and wonderful and beautiful and so many pitfalls and traps and scary elements. Are we modeling a faith to the next generation that's worth claiming in the next generation? I think for many of our kids, the answer is no. We're not. Kinnaman, who I just quoted, is actually probably, probably better known for writing a book with uh, Gabe Lyons a few years ago, back in 2007. It was called Unchristian. And it basically studied today's youth in America and why most youth outside of the church don't view Christianity with much respect at all. In fact, what they perceive, these non-Christian kids perceived Christianity and Christians to be, is largely hypocritical, judgmental, too political, and out of touch. What surprised Kinnaman and Lyons was that when they asked the same question to kids inside the church, the response was virtually identical. The difference was, these kids were insiders. These, these, their perspective was not based on some sort of outside looking in perspective on the church. These are kids who grew up in the church. And in response, they said they too said the church was hypocritical, judgmental, too political, and out of touch with the reality of their lives. And I think we can easily dismiss that and say, well, kids these days, millennials... Or we can ask, are we genuinely modeling a faith that is worth carrying into the next generation for them? Mark Holman, whom Chris has referenced several times over the past couple of weeks, said it this way. The question is not, are we passing things on to our children? But what are we passing on to our children? We have entered into a new land. In response to this new land, we have to have a new mind We have to rethink some of the ways that we are positioning and experiencing and, frankly, living out our Christian faith in ways that are inviting and drawing kids into the life of the church, modeling for them what it means to actually be a follower of Christ. We need to find ways to present very real truths of Scripture to a generation who largely sees Scripture and God and the church as irrelevant to their lives. So I think the easiest way to do that, perhaps, would be just to to make everything more entertaining and more fun and kind of remove all the hard parts and put on a good show and strip out of everything out of Christianity that's difficult. Maybe then they would come. But the problem is, if you do that, it's not really Christianity anymore. It's not really what God has for us. It's not really God's plan for us. And it also doesn't work. Today's youth aren't interested in some sort of dumbed down, meaningless exercise. They don't need that in their life. They have plenty of entertainment in their lives. Today's youth are actually looking for something that can actually make a difference in this world, something that actually has real power in this world. They're looking for big challenges. Francis Chan says it this way. We've done everything humanly possible to make church easy 
We've kept services short and entertaining, discipleship and evangelism optional, and the moral standards low. Our motives weren't bad. We figured we could attract more people by offering Jesus with minimal commitment. But we ended up producing nominal Christians whose unchanged lives deterred others from being interested. I read that with a smile on his face in my mind. But, but, they're, but they're serious words. This is, he says, what the church has modeled for young people, and they don't want it. They want substance. They want depth. They want to make a, a real difference in this world. They see a world that is in desperate need of hope and change, and they see a Christianity and don't make the connection that the two could be related at all. Have we presented to them a faith that is worth carrying into the next generation. We need new ways, but Kinnaman argues that really the new ways that we need are actually more of a return to some of the old ways, a return to Deuteronomy, a, t- a return to a place where faith was passed from generation to generation and it changed the world. He says it this way, I believe that as we dig deeper into the historic Christian faith to nurture younger generations, the entire Western church will be renewed. Young Jesus followers need older Christians to share the rich, fulfilling wine of faith. And the established church needs new wineskins into whom we can pour the church's future. We need each other. I think it's important to point out that he's not just saying, yeah, and those kids will finally get it right. He's saying, no, we need each other. The entire church of the West will be renewed in this process. We need younger people, new wineskins who can come in with new perspectives and new ideas. And we need the, the church of old. We need people that are mature in their faith that can speak into that. We need each other. He presents three ways that we as the church need to kind of rediscover the, the old ways of modeling our faith to our kids. You can write these down. The first is this. He says, the church needs to rediscover, that's right, the screen doesn't work. The church needs to rediscover how we make disciples. He said, if you look biblically, discipleship in scripture is something that was done incredibly relationally, one-on-one intimate relationships. It was, you know, Jesus and his followers, parents and their kids. It was Paul and Timothy. These are one-on-one or one-on-a-couple relationships where people are, are working hard and doing real life together. It's relational. It's not something you can mass produce. Uh, In fact, John Arpark says it this way, God never grows two people the same way. God is a hand crafter, not a mass producer. I think in an age of handcrafted cheese and artisan beer, we should get this. Relationships matter, and disciples can't be mass produced. We need to actually be doing this in close one-on-one relationships with people that are old in their faith and young in their faith. But the challenge that exists that's real is we have real generational gaps that exist in our culture. We live in a culture that largely age segments our people from the very youngest ages. You go to class with kids that are exactly your age and all the way through life, you experience life largely with people in the exact same life stage that you are in. And to a certain extent, we do that at church as well. We we send the kids to their programs and the youth to their programs and, and we keep people separated. One of the things that we're trying to do as a church is to break down those barriers so that intergenerational interactions can happen. It was interesting. Kinneman writes this. Many young people feel that older adults don't understand their doubts and concerns, which is a prerequisite to rich mentoring relationships. In fact, a majority of the young people we interviewed reported never having an adult friend other than their parents. 
Can the church rediscover the intergenerational power of the assembly of the saints? I, as a kid, I remember, you know, there were significant people outside of my parents who spoke into me, who took me hunting, who took me fishing, who took me camping. These different things were, where these people in my life were building into me and speaking into me and building real relationships. How do we become a church that more and more is, is doing that? Having thriving intergeneral relationships should distinguish the church from all the other institutions in our lives that are age-segmented. I'm saying... Not that we should do away with youth group or Sunday school, certainly, or nursery. What I'm saying is those parts of our institution need to be even more intergenerational, even more relationship. We need to prioritize intergenerational relationships in the church, and we need all of us in order to do that. So, yeah, I'm speaking to the adults here in the room, young adults and older adults, empty nesters and aunts and uncles and single adults, and I'm saying choose to invest in our youth. Choose to prioritize our youth in your ministry. They desperately need you. They may not know it, (laughs) but they need you to be in relationship with them. Mentor students to serve with our student ministry, our kids' ministry. Join a small church that's intergenerational. Our small church is great. We have people across a broad, broad lens of life experience and age. And that's wonderful. It's sometimes chaos and it's sometimes messy. But it's wonderful to know that my kids are going to know kids that are not in the exact same life stage that they are or that we are. Be an aunt or an uncle or a grandpa. Go fishing with a kid. Attend their sports games. Take them out for pizza. Invest in our youth. And speaking of youth, I want to speak to you as well. I think this means an openness on your part. To recognize that that aunts and uncles and grandpas and grandmas all have something that they can actually speak into your life, that there is real wisdom there that you need and that can transform you. There's so much wisdom in this room and so much life experience in this room. There are so many people here who could help you navigate the really difficult challenges of life. They're trying to figure out what faith means and how you actually do that in school and what dating is like and what marriage is like and what careers are going to be like. But only if you let them, only if you let them actually speak into your life. Be open to being mentored. In fact, I would say seek out mentors. Seek out men and women here at the church that that you identify with, maybe friends of your parents or one of the leaders in the youth group, and ask them. Say, hey, let's go for pizza. I would love to hear your thoughts on. I'm struggling with this question. I think most of the adults in this room would actually be open to that in reality. And adults, back to you for a second. I would say, be open to the idea of being reverse mentored. The reality is this generation faces challenges we didn't. They know things about this culture that we don't. And the only way we're going to be effective in reaching them and mentoring them and and growing with them and walking with them is if we understand them more. Seek to understand, kids. Allow them to shape you. That is the idea of regeneration happening across generations, not just us changing them. Does that make sense? Getting passionate here. All right. The next one he points to is he says, the church needs to rediscover Christian calling and vocation. And that sounds really wordy and kind of heady. What is vocation? What is calling? Here's, here's what it comes down to. One of the biggest challenges that kids today face in our culture is they have no idea what is the meaning of life, a greater purpose for life, a center 
for life, and it's leading to high rates of depression and anxiety and even suicide in our kids. I think kids feel like, all this work for what? I hear so many kids say, and frankly, my own kids have said, like, so what is this all for? Like, I work hard in school so that I can get into a good college, so that I can get a good job, where I work for the rest of my life, and then I die. (laughs) Not much to aspire to, frankly. And yet that's the picture they get of what the purpose of life is in our culture. Success and career and a good school and good programs. Those things are all great, but that's not a center. And if that's all you have to live for, it's not... Hard to understand why kids, like some adults, are just living to make it through the week. They're enduring life, not thriving in life. They're just making it through the day so that they can live for the weekend, live for sports, escape into video games. And faith for them just seems completely disconnected from real life. They don't see any sort of connection between how their faith should impact anything else in their lives. And they say, like, what's the difference does it make anyway? Maybe that's a fair question. I mean, have we modeled a faith that's actually transformative in our own lives as adults? Is our purpose not only so central to our lives that it's obvious to them, but that they could actually articulate that back, that that they've seen us model to them a life that is centered on Jesus Christ? Do our kids see meaning and purpose in our lives, or do they see parents and adults who are frantically trying to make it through a week? to live for the weekend and to escape into recreation. A weekend that gets interrupted if we go to church. Do we as adults model for our kids lives that live into our God-ordained mission, purpose, and meaning and calling in our vocations, whatever our vocations are, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a barista or a mechanic or whatever you do, is your life lived in such a way that is centered on Christ and hope and kingdom living and being called into that your kids see it evidenced in your life. I think we tend to think that pastors are called and the rest of us are just hired into our careers. But central to our belief as Christians is that each of us is called in whatever our vocation is to live it to the glory of God, for the purpose of God, to bring God's kingdom into the midst of those realities. Do our kids see it? Richard Stern says this, Young people are looking for answers and authenticity. When they see a church or Christian seemingly more concerned with appearances than truth, more concerned about rules than love, more concerned about money and success than poverty and justice, is it any surprise that they leave? And parents, what do your own children see when they look at you? Do they see lives deeply dedicated to following Christ in every dimension of life? Or do they see only a religious veneer with a walk that doesn't match your talk? Young people have a sensitive nose for phonies and for hypocrisy. And when they smell them, they run the other way. It's not surprising that many next-generation Christians have no idea how their faith should fit with their life, with their career, with their school, with their relationships, with their dating. Because they haven't seen it modeled for them. If they haven't seen it modeled in us. It's not surprising that many next-generation Christians see faith as irrelevant to real life. So that's what they've seen modeled in us. For many next generation Christians, they look at what's happening right now with immigration and they see a church who's willing to talk about it politically but not theologically. When they see the very real challenges our world's facing, they, they see us you know, talking you know, very lofty terms and thoughts and prayers. They want more than that. 
Not to in any way diminish the power of that, but they want to see a faith that's actually making a difference in this world, where our faith is so central that it changes the way we spend, it changes the way we invest our time and our treasure and our talents. And when they see us fail to do that, it confirms their suspicion that this faith is not really all that transforming. Our kids will only believe that faith makes a huge difference in their lives if they see it make a real difference in ours. So mentors, adults, um, I would say, do the work that you need to do, that I need to do, to find what is your calling. How is Christ central to what you're doing in your life? Are you just work a day, punch the clock, get it done so that you can get to the weekend? Or do you have a call on your life? And then having found that, get to know kids and get to, get to know how you can share how you discovered your call, your central purpose in life so that they can begin to see that lived out in you and then help them find what their purpose is. Their purpose beyond just getting to prom or getting to graduation or finding a good school. Those things are great, but they're not an end. Kids need you. But I would argue you need them. <laughs> I need them. We need each other to shape and renew and to be reborn as a church. The last way that David Kinnaman says that the church needs to kind of change our focus is that the church needs to prioritize wisdom over information. There's a place to write that in your notes. I think we live uh, in a time that is unique. No generation in human history has ever faced the fire hose of information that our kids face today online and in schools and from their friends. We have never had the kind of information that we have right now, but what we're lacking is any ability to actually take that information and wisely discern how it applies to our life. Our kids have never been exposed to as many religious ideas and cultural ideas and political ideas, and they have no idea how to decipher that and distill that down into what it actually means for them and what it means uh, scripturally. Are we equipping kids to not only receive the information, but have the discernment to wisely apply? Kinnaman says this, Young adults are digital natives immersed in a glossy pop culture that, pers- that prefers speed over depth, sex over wholeness, and opinion over truth. But it's not enough for the faith community to run around with their hair on fire, warning about the hazards of cultural entrapment. God's children in the next generation need more and deserve better. It can feel really overwhelming. Chris talked about this week one in the face of these trends and in the face of all the information that our kids are exposed to and just the deluge that they have all the time, it can feel overwhelming to us, but it's not enough for us as the church to simply say don't or don't read that or don't think that or just have faith. It's not enough. We need to equip our kids. We need to have conversations with our kids. We need to understand what our kids are hearing, what they're learning, what they're thinking, how they're processing. We need to stop processing information for them and start processing information with them, giving them the tools to think theologically, to think scripturally, to think about how this impacts their relationship with God and their relationship with other people. And we have to realize that it really does take all of us because these are all our kids. We need new old ways. We need to think differently. We need each other. And as Chris pointed out, we desperately need the Holy Spirit. This is bigger than our generation can handle. We need the Holy Spirit to shape and empower and, and embolden us to lead into this new land. I would encourage you, if you're an adult here, um, I would encourage you to talk with Caitlin, talk with Dan, 
I think the idea, perhaps, of actually approaching a teen and saying, hey, I want to mentor you, is probably scary. In fact, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) But talk to Dan and Caitlin. They don't have all the answers. But what they have is the ability to bridge that generational gap. They can help you to identify how could you be more involved in the lives of our teens and our students. If you're a teen here, if you're a youth here, if you're next generation, and you're thinking, you know what, I would like to do something like that. What I would encourage you to do is talk to Dan or Caitlin. (laughs) They don't have all the answers, but they can help bridge that gap and help you find adults who can actually speak into your life, who've maybe walked a little bit of your path, and they can help form and shape you. I think as parents, and as a church, as adults, we need to realize that we're not going to be able to take our kids anywhere that we have not ourselves been. The reality is, unless we are willing to do the work of finding our purpose, of making God and his kingdom central in our own lives, we can't possibly model that for our kids. Unless we're willing to do the work of of actually investing in relationships and stop a model where we just come, but rather we reinvest and we want to be building the next generation, we can't possibly take our kids there. I'll end with this. Scott McKnight, uh, who's a covenant pastor, An author says it this way, if Jesus is in your life, then guiding your kids to Jesus is just taking them to the center of the presence of your life with God and their life with you. There's hope for this next generation. Uh, I think Kinnaman would say that this is going to be the greatest generation that's ever lived. And yet we have a role to play in shaping and calling and directing them and helping them find God in this next generation, this new land. Let me pray for us.